Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I'm your host, Chris Butler. No preamble today, we're getting straight into it this time with the penultimate episode of the first season of Timeless. It's episode 15, Public Enemy number 1. The episode starts with Garcia Flynn sitting alone in a church. He's been there for two hours, apparently. The priest asks Flynn if he can help him. He says his wife was a practicing Catholic. He was dragged to Mass once a month. He talks abstractly about how he has a job to do and at first he thought he was going to make things better, possibly bring his wife back to him. But no matter what he does, things only get worse. The priest says you have to trust that God has a plan. Flint says, but what if you could change that plan? What if you could change the course of history? Does that mean that nothing is meant to be? The priest doesn't understand what Flynn is asking. Flynn says he's asking for absolution. If Flynn's looking for forgiveness for the things he's done, it lends credibility to the idea that he is a good person deep down. He thought he was going to make things better, even as he did terrible things. Is he just kidding himself, though? I'm reminded of his conversation with Jesse James. James accused him of doing bad things because he likes it. I think that's true, but Flynn is certainly conflicted. He wants to be a better man. At this point in the story, Lucy, Rufus, Wyatt and Agent Christopher know that Rittenhouse have control of Mason Industries and control of the lifeboat. Rufus and Lucy can get back in, and in fact are required to go in when they are ordered to but Wyatt and Agent Christopher have no way to get in there. Rufus is still the only one capable of piloting the lifeboat, other than Emma Whitmore. So Rufus and Lucy have to go back into Mason Industries and pretend that everything is normal. We first see Gia and Rufus. Gia is on edge, but Rufus tells her to do whatever they ask of her. She doesn't notice, but he slips a phone into her pocket. This is a flag to us viewers that Rufus has some kind of plan in motion. Lucy arrives. Um, Trying to pretend that everything is normal doesn't last long. Jake Neville explains their new mission to them. Rather than wait for Flynn to jump and then chase after him, which is what they normally do, he says they are going to travel back to 1962 when Flynn's mother, Maria Tompkins, was just 17 and kill her. Rufus and Lucy both say there is no way they are doing that. Gia objects to the plan as well. It would be morally reprehensible. Rufus turns on Mason and asks him why is he going along with this. But Mason has no hesitation in siding with Neville. He says Maria Tompkins gave birth to a monster. Neville says if Rufus and Lucy don't do this, they will be judged as aiding and abetting a terrorist and jailed. 10 to 15 years. Neville, remember, is supposedly an NSA agent and has the authority to do that. He probably even is actually an NSA agent, genuinely, not just claiming to be one, as well as being a part of Rittenhouse. 
It's established now that Rittenhouse has people at the highest levels of these organisations, including the White House. So Rufus and Lucy have no choice. They prepare for the journey. While Lucy is storing some of her things in a locker, who should appear but Benjamin Cahill? She says she shouldn't be surprised that he's here. In fact, she isn't surprised at all, because Agent Christopher has already told her that Cahill is involved. But she does a good job of not revealing that. He says she has to understand that Flynn is out of control, and this one death can save hundreds. He says they need her on this trip. She's their chosen historian, and she always has been. She tells him to go to hell, but he grabs her arm. I find that quite disturbing. It's the first time father and daughter have touched, I think, and it's an aggressive move by him. She takes a long look at his arm where he's grabbed her, which is a perfect bit of physical acting, I think. I wonder if that was in the script, or if the director came up with it, or if Abigail came up with it. Cahill insists he knows that this isn't who she is. He's proud of her. He only asks that she do this one thing, and he promises the next mission will be to save Amy. He says he's far more able to deliver on that than Agent Christopher ever was. There are so many layers to these scenes, although Lucy and Rufus appear to be caving in and going along with this. Actually, they aren't. They have their own plan, as we're about to find out. The fact that Lucy sticks to her plan, despite what Cahill has just offered her, shows how determined and brave she is. They dress for 1962 and climb into the lifeboat. The third person going with them is Sergeant Major Caleb Sullivan. He's there to kill Maria Tompkins. Rufus warns Sullivan he'll feel a little queasy on re-entry at the end of the time jump. He's too obnoxious to say thank you or anything like that. He says, don't worry about me. The caption comes up, May 3rd, 1962. Houston, Texas, and this is where things take an unexpected turn. And the way this unravels is very clever and very entertaining. Sullivan is reeling with the nausea of the time jump, almost incoherent. Rufus is practically hyperventilating with nerves, but then turns around and shoots Sullivan with a dart gun. Lucy quickly reaches forward and takes his gun from his inside pocket as the dart takes effect and he falls unconscious. She almost can't believe they've managed to do this successfully. Rufus immediately resets the time coordinates and they jump again. And this is the last we'll hear of any attempt to kill Maria Tompkins. Which, in some ways, I would like to have seen that play out a little further. I think it would have been very tense for Lucy and Rufus if they'd got a lot closer to the reality of Maria being killed. But in any case, it wasn't to be. Back at Mason Industries, Gia is startled when she sees the lifeboat has jumped again. She calls out and Mason steps forward to try to understand what's happening. And then the whole system goes down because Rufus has planned ahead and sabotaged it. Mason is furious and accuses Gia of being involved in this. He orders her to step away from the controls and to get out. 
there's the timeless board logo thing that always comes up after the first few scenes and before the credits it always shows various dates flickering round and then ends up with letters spelling timeless the first date shown is always the main historical date applicable in this episode it flickers away so quickly you wouldn't normally read it unless you pause the playback for this episode the date shown isn't may 3rd 1962 it's march 13th 1931 that's where we're really going but where Rufus takes them first is to the secret site where Wyatt and Agent Christopher are waiting. There's a really hilarious shot of Lucy holding a gun on Sullivan, propping him up with her foot. Wyatt congratulates them on successfully stealing the time machine. He tells Rufus he's a badass. There's a bit of irony here that Wyatt is in so much trouble for stealing the time machine himself but now Agent Christopher has sanctioned Rufus and Lucy stealing it again. Not that she has any authority, really, anymore. Rufus says Mason will likely have the systems back up and running in a matter of hours, and it's going to take four hours to recharge the lifeboat for another trip. But Wyatt is calm. He says they need to take this one step at a time. He says their first mission should be to get Lucy's sister back. She wasn't expecting this, but she can barely contain herself with the thought that she's finally going to be able to do this. Agent Christopher is against it, but it looks like she's willing to go along with it. Lucy outlines her plan, which is simply to go back in time and make sure Carol Preston and Henry Wallace meet. When they met in the original history, it was love at first sight, so it should be again. Remember this changed after the Hindenburg episode because Wallace met and married someone else and so Amy was never born. Wyatt says, let's go do it and then they get an alert in the lifeboat telling them that Flynn has jumped in the mothership. Lucy looks crestfallen because she knows what this will mean. Her plan to save Amy has just been snatched away from her and will have to wait and she's well aware that later might mean never. She's scared that this is their one chance and she'll never get another if Rittenhouse tracked them down. We cut to 1931 where Garcia is brought to meet with Al Capone. He hands Capone the tax ledgers that, in the history we know, were used to convict Capone for tax evasion. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is co-written by Matt Whitney and Anselm Richardson. Matt Whitney previously wrote episode 8, the wonderful Space Race episode. And Slam Richardson previously wrote the also wonderful episode 9, the Bonnie and Clyde episode. And he also had a regular staff writer credit on season 1. So as I mentioned last time, you get a sense of the whole writing team working together at this point to get this first season of Timeless over the finish line. This episode is directed by Guy Furland. It's his only directing work on Timeless so far, but he's directed a long list of other TV shows, including The Shield, Torchwood, The Walking Dead, and Elementary. Capone is dismissive of what Flynn has given him, it doesn't seem likely to him that he'd ever be convicted of tax evasion. 
But Flynn convinces him, with the further evidence of a damning letter from Capone's accountant. So Capone says he owes Flynn a debt of gratitude. And this is often the way it goes with Flynn. He gives you something, but he wants something in return. White has to convince the others that they do need to go after Flynn as their priority. And deep down they all know it. Even though Lucy is desperate to go after Amy. We cut to Gia. The phone Rufus snuck into her pocket is ringing now. He says she's in a lot of trouble. He asks her to delay and distract Mason for as long as she can. He doesn't give her any detailed explanation, but says she can't let the people there get the time machine. She agrees to help. She tells him to come back to her safely. He says the same to her, and tells her he couldn't live with himself if anything happened to her. Neville was coming to speak to her, and he heard her talking to someone. She denies it, but he finds the phone and has her taken away. The lifeboat jumps at last, leaving Agent Christopher behind, because the lifeboat can only carry three people. What's clever about this, in terms of the story, I think, is that we now have the regular team of Wyatt, Rufus and Lucy back in the lifeboat, which seemed impossible an episode earlier. There was no way for Wyatt to be forgiven and let back into Mason Industries. But what the writers came up with instead was to make Rufus and Lucy fugitives too. I think it's a brilliant inversion of the whole premise of the show up to this point. Lucy and Rufus are dressed for 1962 and Wyatt for present day. So Lucy is worried that they couldn't look more conspicuous if they tried in 1931. Wyatt asks where Flynn will be on March 13th, 1931 in Chicago. Lucy says there's only one place she can think of, and then we cut to... It's the Federal Court building, I assume, where Capone is giving a statement to the press after being cleared of all charges due to lack of evidence. He walks away to a car and Flynn is seen with him. The time team are wondering what to do next, when Elliot Ness also appears before reporters. One of them says it's Capone who is the untouchable one. Ness responds by punching the reporter, which is a bit harsh. Ness is played by Misha Collins, who is quite well known for his role in Supernatural. Timeless hasn't really gone in for high-profile guest stars in general, but maybe they're willing to give it a try once in a while. Anyway, Lucy and the others chase after Elliot Ness. He says he's not talking to reporters, so they claim to be private detectives. Wyatt introduces himself as Connery, Lucy as Costner, and Rufus as Robert De Niro. It's good to see this running gag continuing with their aliases. This is one of their best, I feel. Lucy claims William Randolph Hearst, which is a name that will crop up again in Timeless, hired them to investigate Flynn, and that he is a dangerous gangster from San Francisco. And whatever he's here to do with Capone is going to be way worse than tax evasion. Ness says he told them going after Capone for his taxes would never work. Lucy says, well, it could have worked. Gia is locked in a room at Mason Industries. Neville and Mason have been unable to trace Rufus from the phone. They want to know where the time machine is. She says she doesn't know. Rufus only said he was worried about her. 
Mason asks if she has any idea how much trouble she's in. This is the National Security Agency. Gia says when she first met Mason, she was in awe of him. He was her hero. But now she sees him for who he truly is, a coward. For a moment he looks genuinely hurt. But then he leans in and says she needs to think about what she's doing. Help them or be arrested. Elliot Ness has taken Wyatt and Co back to his place, which turns out to be a small apartment where he's living, after receiving death threats from Capone. Rufus asks him how he can live with the fear of threats made against his family, which is a constant worry for Rufus himself. Ness says he couldn't ever look his wife in the eyes and tell her he's given up. There's a knock at the door. The knock follows a familiar pattern. So Ness believes it to be a friend, but it isn't. It's an assassin who fires through the door and kills him. The assassin enters the room. Wyatt and the others take cover until he runs out of bullets and then Wyatt is able to shoot back and kill him. Lucy is distraught. Elliot Ness is not supposed to be dead for another 26 years. Wyatt says they have to go. They can't risk being arrested themselves. They have no IDs and he says he's wearing button-fly jeans from The Gap, which in itself isn't a crime, but I guess he's worried in general about the anachronistic clothes they're all wearing. With Elliot Ness prematurely deceased, they need a new plan. They steal a car with the aim of finding Capone, they really want Flynn, but Wyatt says one problem at a time, which has become a kind of mantra for him in this episode. Lucy tells him to stop saying it. So he tells him the story of Diamond Dave, who flung himself out of an aircraft that was on fire without a parachute. He'd woken up with the fire all around him and he assumed the plane was in the air, but it was actually on the ground, so he survived. He was asked why he jumped out of the plane if he thought it was in the air. And he said, one problem at a time. I'm not convinced this is a perfect strategy, but it could be. Anyway, Wyatt says if Capone is supposed to be behind bars, then they need to find a way to put him there before they think about doing anything else. Lucy has an idea how to do that. They track down Richard Hart, secretly Jimmy Capone, Al Capone's brother. Lucy, the historian, knows his identity, which Hart claims no one else knows. I'm not sure how historically accurate this is. I don't think his relationship to Al Capone was a total secret in 1931, but he'd certainly gone to great lengths to distance himself from his brother. So they track him down. At first he says he doesn't want anything to do with his brother, but Lucy says he's the only person who can stop him, and eventually she persuades him it's his duty to do so. We cut back to Al Capone and Garcia Flynn and discover what Flynn's been after. In exchange for the information that allowed Capone to find and kill Elliot Ness, Capone has had the mayor of Chicago brought before him. Flynn accuses the mayor of belonging to Rittenhouse. The mayor is held down in a chair while Flynn sets about punching him to get the answers he wants. He says he needs to know about a meeting where all the Rittenhouse big shots gather together. 
He says Julian Charvet told him about the meeting four years ago in Paris, but Charvet didn't know the details. The mayor says Charvet was killed four years ago in Paris. So now we know how it went when Flynn met Charvet in the previous episode. Flynn is asking the mayor of Chicago now for details that Charvet didn't know. The mayor says this meeting happens every 25 years. The last one was two years previously in DC. So the next one isn't for another 23 years, which will make it 1954. A long time to wait, the mayor says. Of course, he doesn't have a time machine. So this is the information that Flynn wanted. And now that he has it, Capone orders his men to take the mayor to the docks to dispose of him. Capone thanks Flynn again, but he says Flynn has done two favours for him, so he still owes one in return. Flynn says there is a way to make it even. We don't find out what that is yet, but it's Flynn at his most despicable, I would say. At that moment, Wyatt, Lucy, Rufus and Jimmy Capone are arriving in the lobby of the building, and Jimmy manages to get them in to meet Al Capone. The room Gia is locked in has various pieces of junk equipment lying around and she's managed to cobble together enough kit to access the Mason Industries computer system. Connor Mason has just got the system back up and he sees that the lifeboat has gone to 1931. When it jumps back to the present they'll have some idea where it is. Neville orders his men to prepare to move when they have more information but then Gia manages to crash the system again. Mason knows it must be her doing. When they arrive at the room she's in, there is no trace of the equipment she was using. She's dismantled and hidden everything. Initially, Al Capone is happy to see his brother. He asks who the people are that are with him. Jimmy says they're friends. Al points at Rufus and says, even him? Rufus says he's likeable. Al offers Jimmy a drink. At first he says he can't take it because he's a prohibition agent. Then he says he's not a very good one and downs the drink. Lucy interrupts to say they asked Jimmy to bring them here because they're looking for Garcia Flynn. Al says Flynn was there. Rufus asks if Garcia happened to mention Rittenhouse. Al says he did. He said something about a summit that would take place in DC in 1954. It's a tricky piece of writing, this, to pull off. Somehow the time team needed to get this piece of information. And the only way, really, is if Al just offers it up. They just about finesse it with the acting and the direction, so that I can buy that Al just blurts this out. But it's on the edge of being believable. Al says surely Jimmy didn't come here just so they could ask him about Flynn. Jimmy hesitates and then says, no, he's here to arrest him. Al laughs and says, there's no way that's going to happen. And then we find out what the other favour was that Flynn asked for. He told Al Capone that three people would come looking for him, and he asked Al to kill Rufus, which of course would strand Wyatt and Lucy in 1931. Al draws a gun and points it at Rufus. Wyatt and Jimmy draw their guns and point them at Al. The only other man in the room is one of Al's men, who is also pointing guns at Rufus and the others. 
Al says he and Jimmy are family, and family is more important than anything. Which is quite a Rittenhouse sort of thing to say, but that's not the case here. So Al knows Jimmy won't shoot. Wyatt makes the decision to try to push Rufus to safety, but Al Capone fires. And following that, Jimmy shoots Al dead, and Wyatt kills the other man. And in the aftermath, they realise that Rufus has been shot. At Mason Industries, Mason is looking defeated. Benjamin Cahill comes in to talk to him. Mason says they'll be back up and running in a few hours, but he's obviously bluffing. He says there is a way to get speedier results. There is an NSA data farm in Utah. If you could have access to the data there, his team have advanced data mining software, far beyond anything the NSA will have for 10 years. It would give him the ability to trace anyone, anywhere Cahill wants. We don't see Cahill's response to that in this episode, but we will come back to it in the next episode. Everything is not as it seems. Rufus is bleeding badly from his gunshot wound, but they can't easily get him to a hospital. Lucy says in 1931 the hospitals were segregated and not good. Wyatt says they can't easily go to one in the present day either. Their faces will be on every government watch list. Rufus repeats the one problem at a timeline and says to get him to the lifeboat so he can take them home. They drive to the lifeboat and lift him into the pilot seat. He fires up the time machine but before they can jump he falls unconscious. Without Rufus they can't go anywhere and the episode ends on that cliffhanger. This is another terrific episode. I especially like the early scenes with Lucy and Rufus stealing the lifeboat. The Capone brothers aren't really as interesting as the main story is, with Flynn poised now to attack Rittenhouse in 1954. He's been particularly cold-blooded in steering Capone into shooting Rufus, despite the doubts he appeared to have when he was talking to the Catholic priest at the start of this episode. Flynn and the time team barely shared any screen time this episode. He's been constantly a step ahead of them maybe several steps ahead. Mason seems to be in collusion with Rittenhouse, but that last conversation with Cahill sets the scene for his end game, Mason's end game. And Wyatt's Lucy, and particularly Rufus, are in dire straits, as is only right and proper going into the final episode of the season. That's all for this episode of Timeless Files. Next time I'll be discussing the final episode of season one, Everything has to be resolved, one way or another, and there are certainly some unexpected twists and surprises. That's episode 16, The Red Scare. And with any luck, that podcast will be posted in the next few days because season two of Timeless begins its UK broadcasts on April 4th. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. I hope you're enjoying Timeless Files. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>